Hi, I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. In each podcast, we talk with game changers who are applying entrepreneurial tactics to solve systemic problems in ways that are replicable and sustainable. Today, I'm talking with Tommy Welch, who is the high school superintendent at Boston Public Schools. Tommy joined Boston Public Schools in 2015 as an academic superintendent after 16 years with the, with the Los Angeles Unified School District. During his time in LA, he taught and served as a school site leader at all levels from elementary through adult education. During his final years in LA, he worked within the Pilot School Network as the founding principal of a middle school from 2011 to 14, and went on to open a high school in 2014. As the high school superintendent, Tommy oversees all aspects of a network of traditional and alternative high schools in BPS, as well as the BPS Reengagement Center. Tommy, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jill. It's great to have you here. Um, so if I've done my math correctly, you've been involved in public school education for over 20 years. Just so possible? Over, just but, over 20 years, yeah. Oh my goodness. So in both in LA, which is massive, is it the largest school system? Second largest beyond New York. Beyond New York, okay. And here in Boston. So which roles that you've played in public school have been your favorite? I want to say the best job mm. is the principal position. Okay. Um, you mentioned I was both at a middle school and high school level. Yeah. Uh, middle school takes a special soul to lead a team of 60 staff members and over a thousand students. And, uh, you know, it definitely tired me out. I looked like one of those pictures <laughs> of Obama from his first year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I kind of went through that. You must've gone backwards then <laughs> back in the time machine when you was, got here. But, um, yeah, it's a very special experience to be able to lead a school. Yeah. Um, and both those, both of the schools that, uh, you mentioned, I, I opened, uh, from the very beginning. Oh, so wow. it was, uh, my team's vision. It wasn't, uh, changing a culture, it was setting a culture. Mm. Um, so it was a really beautiful experience. And, and a lot of the middle school students flowed into the high into school. Into the high school yeah, they started. So, so and, what, and what prompted you to start both of those? So just, do you want to try something different or... You want the longer story or a short story? Well, you know, it's up to you. We got a lot to talk about. So I was in a, a graduate program at UCLA. Okay. And the first summer assignment was to do community asset mapping of where you worked. And I was at the elementary level. And I did, you know, summer long project with two other folks from the uh, neighborhood. And at the end of the project we presented, I asked the professor, I was like, what, what do people do with this? And we were the eighth cohort going through UCLA. And he's yeah. like, you know, no one's really, you know, applied it to their work. It's it just a nice project that we did in the summer. And I said, well, I, I want to move forward with this. And it was at the time where we're, they were having a hiring freezes for assistant principals and principals because the budget was getting smaller. Right. And um, I saw it as a pathway to actually connect a whole bunch of uh, schools and resources in the South Central neighborhood. And hmm. one thing led to another. I, I left to the high school level and then they were building new schools uh, seemingly on every other block in LA at this time. And yeah. uh, I basically got together with a team and completed the RFP for wow. a new school. And we were going against big charter organizations and a union uh, was putting together school. And my team of little teachers won. And no kidding. Started, yeah. No kidding. That's amazing. And does, is it still performing well? It's had its challenges over the last couple of years. There was, uh, after the, the leader who replaced me, there was a couple of leadership changes. Yeah. Um, but overall, it was, it was a school... The middle school is a school that relieved one of the lowest performing schools in the city. So yeah. 
uh, in a neighborhood comparison within the neighborhood, it's still doing very well, but there's definitely room for it to grow. It, it all depends on the leader, huh? In education, maybe and in everything. Team. And yeah. the team. And the yeah. team. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But they need someone to follow too. Do you, what were the things that you observed or worked on in LA that you would like to see replicated here in Boston or, or vice versa, things that are happening here that you think that they should be applying in LA? That's a good question because LA is a really, really big system. There's over 200 high schools Um, in Boston, you know, 35 schools. One thing um, that's a big difference between the two cities is the uh, citywide open enrollment for high school compared to in Los Angeles, we have zones of choice. So when I was a high school uh, leader, I had five colleagues in all the middle schools in the area had a zone and students had a choice where to go mm-hmm. and you could choose based on what program you wanted or how close it was to the house or what you wanted to do with sports or other activities. Mm-hmm. Um, it made the um, ecosystem a little bit smaller, mm. I guess you could say. So within our neighborhood, there's probably 20 elementary schools and three middle schools. And, you know, we had five schools, a couple, couple of large high schools, a couple of smaller high schools, yeah. but it, it really created like a bubble of yeah. people collaborating. You know, it's like, you know, competition for the students that come, uh, but right. it, it created a, a sense of like a small community within a larger city. Yeah. Um, in Boston, there are a couple neighborhoods that feel that way. Like um, East Boston. East like Boston that. in particular. It's yeah. very, uh, it's a very high percentage of the students who live in East Boston, go to East Boston schools. Right. And you, you see, and I used to, I think it was 2015, 16, I had a chance to support a K-12 network in that neighborhood. Yeah. So seeing the kids and uh, the school leaders and families that were all connected within a K-0 to 12 system and how the folks work together and collaborate. There's, there's something to say about that. Yeah, um, well, I think the predictability of it. And, and I think one of the things that I've noticed just in observing the school system for a couple of years now is that if I'm a parent, in the school system, especially if I've just arrived in this country, this is a very complex system to try to navigate and, and understand where what my options are and, and where I'm going to do best given what I think my potential is. It's, it's complicated. Um, so you and I met when you were the academic superintendent. You were overseeing Charlestown and the... East Boston, East Boston, downtown Chinatown, downtown so, yeah. Chinatown, yeah. and so in East Boston we were doing the My Way Cafe yeah. stuff, which you were incredibly supportive. Thank you, of. thank you very much. Um, and and today we were going to talk a bit about off track youth and alternative schools. And so when you were doing that work, did you spend a lot of time thinking about off track youth? alternative schools is, is that thematically a thing that everyone thinks about or do you kind of have to be more kind of densely in that world which you just spent the last year being yeah, and, densely involved in and, it and you'll see in in alternative education in boston there's there's probably 20 programs in schools officially 13 are, are being supported by me yeah um but the variation of how um these extra scoop of intervention is is, is provided for our students um it looks different in every building. And when I had that K-12 network, I worked also closely with Charleston High School. They do have a uh, program embedded called uh, Diploma Plus yep. at Charlestown. Right. East Boston has an uh, alternative program, a very small one that's not an official program, but it's their homegrown version. So you see hmm. um, how schools uh, work with students who are overage and undercredited. And yeah. it, it's, it's nice when a larger high school who's been with students for 
a long time and, and that the teachers could tell you this is what we think works best for these students yeah. and the programs are very they're, they're customized and they're small and you go in the classrooms they're small the teachers have very good relationships with the students and they understand their circumstances and their challenges and they they want to they, they ensure they provide the opportunities for them to be successful it's not always a straight line for these students to get yeah. to the finish line and and there's a general under, a sense of understanding that with these school leaders um, but I think it's it's a good model when a school community claims their students as their students and their students' success as part of their success. That's interesting. So do you think, so, because you, can you break down the picture for us of alternative high schools? How many of them are there versus how many high schools have programs that are considered alternative? So there's, in my portfolio right now, there are, there are five high schools and you could consider the McKinley schools another one. It's a network of, uh, K-12 network of schools. So um, that's that that would be the sixth yeah. Um, that are officially schools uh, recognized by the uh, state uh, education department. Um, there are several other programs. Uh, mm -hmm. There's eight other programs that I work uh, very closely with. Yep. Some of them are actually programs like I described in East Boston. I'm not working officially with them, but there are programs um, that have a small cohort of five teachers and a director that are co-located at a high school campus that serve exclusively those 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 students so um, the one I'm thinking about right now is Excel High School has yeah. a uh, partner program called Accelerated Intervention Program and this small team of teachers uh, worked with 34 students this year and um, they were the students who are overaged and undercredited and they got 28 of the 34 to graduate and that's extremely successful for a small yeah. program supporting alternative education um, other programs we have, we have a, um, a, one of our schools, the Boston Collaborative High School, mm -hmm. um, has six programs uh, underneath it, and they're very specialized programs. Uh, one of them is our Ostagai High School downtown that mm -hmm. supports students that are in uh, recovery. Uh, we have a program for specifically for uh, pregnant and new parenting teens. Mm. Um, and we have an online program. We have a hybrid online program and, and a face-to-face -face delivery, uh, instructional delivery program. So we have a, 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 a smorgasbord, I guess you could say, for, for students to select uh, and for us to help them and encourage the program that may fit the best, uh, best for them to, so they could be successful. So, that, so that's so Manny, who we interviewed recently, that, that's his work, is helping students to re-engage students and then help them understand what their options are? Yes, and really in, in their expertise that they bring, they have re-engagement specialists where they interview the student, they talk to the family because it's it, the biggest thing for me is the fit, yeah. uh, the student's schedule, um, how the students, you know, will, will succeed, uh, will be most successful in a program. Yeah. We People don't realize this, but we get students from the exam schools who come in who just don't want the large, uber competitive uh, high school. Right. And, you know, they want to do their own thing. And, and you know, I, two of the students in our Boston Collaborative uh, graduation this year were two of those students from yeah. the the exam school, and I think they were both in the like online hybrid program. Um, but you know, they they were like, look, I, I I just wanted to do what I had to do in high school. I'm going to move on to college. Right. Both of them are going to a four year college, hmm. um, but it wasn't a good for, fit for them at right. the, at the large exam school. That's interesting. How many kids do you think are in this um, bucket of alternative high school candidates? How many kids are that we serve? Yeah, yeah, there are roughly a thousand, so it's, it's a little less than a thousand. Okay, um, across the district, the kids that are um, classified as uh, off track um, mm -hmm. through the various definitions that we've developed over the years in Boston um, ranges from three to four thousand, but there are one thousand students enrolled in the schools and programs that are, are supported by alternative education. And is, should it be three or four thousand? 
Well, I mean, here's the thing. Like, if we included the East Boston program or some of the other homegrown programs, like uh, West Roxbury had a program that was a, basically a hybrid online program that's very similar to the one that's at the collaborative. Yep. Those are those are alternative programs that are built within the school by mm-hmm. the staff. So, I mean, you could include all those. I would love to collaborate with more of those programs. To yeah. it's, it's all about sharing the best practices and learning from each other. Um, you know, these programs are homegrown and, and they know the students best and the teachers, you know, work with the other teachers. But to have a, a pool of expertise to tap into, I think, is something very important. And it's something that we're yeah. exploring as we move forward with the uh, high school networks. So how many high school students are there in total, do you think? I think there's 17,000. So 17,000 and three to 4,000 of them are could qualify for all dead because of EWIs, hmm. early warning indicators. And and then and then there's also this cross reference of rigor, like the density of rigor hmm. in a program. And do you do you find that when once kids are reengaged and are in an alternative education situation, do they um, is there rigor in those in those courses, and do they tend to? Like I'm most familiar with the BDEA, mm-hmm. and uh, it does seem like the administration there and the teachers there are very focused on once a child is enrolled that that student is going to graduate with a plan. Mm-hmm. And and does is that typical of, or is it more that we're just we trying to get kids to the point of um, obtaining a, a diploma. No, I, I think that you're you're going down the right path here with um, Manny's role mm-hmm. in the reengagement center and his team, um, really trying to find that good fit for a student where they'd be inspired to uh, attain their credits faster than a normal. Because a lot of these students are overage, undercredited, and they yeah. need to earn credits faster than a typical, you know, five or six credits a year. Right. And so when you brought up BDA, and they do a really good job. They're a, our largest alternative education high school. Um, and what Allison does and what her team does, they have a variety of programs that students get really excited and interested. Yeah. Um, they have a program with uh, Harvard Med School. I know that they uh, participate on Mondays. I think at the at the uh, medical facility. They have a program with the Hill, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the Hill Foundation, I think it yeah, is, yeah. Uh, where the kids get to go and do um, uh, off-campus learning experiences. Right. Like they're out in the woods. Yeah, and, and, and you know what? And you, know, you talk to the kids, and some of the kids get fired up about being out yeah. in the woods, and some of the kids are, I'm not going to go. I don't want right. to do that. So it's <laughs> it's finding that like what gets the kids ticking. Yeah. Um, and and that that school does a really good job. They're larger, so they have the opportunity to provide more interesting. Uh, options for the students, um, but you know, and I want to make sure that the students at all the schools have something that uh, gets them ticking. And uh, really, it, a lot of it is about the engagement and getting them in and, and let them understand what they have to do to to graduate uh, with the requirements that are, are set forth by their schools. Um, one of the big things that we're focusing on is active engagement and, and looking at how you entice kids to come to school on a regular basis. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. By definition. Uh, these off-track students, if you look at their um, attendance records, I, th- I think it's over 85% of them are chronically absent, how we right. determine ca- chronically right. absent. Right. And so that's one of these metrics that we're trying to figure out. How can we make it more meaningful for and our it, And it's not that they're not bright. In many cases, they're very bright, and they're just completely disengaged because school has is not relevant. Disengaged, or they have other things going on in life yeah. that... They may need a different schedule. Yeah. Um, they, you know, the seven to two o'clock schedule just doesn't work for them. And um, providing them options to actually be motivated to get 
through right. to the finish line, I think is something that's very valuable that the alternative network brings. Do you think that BPS, I know you just, you just finished this whole series of recommendations to the school committee and to the um, interim superintendent and the incoming superintendent. Um, do you think that BPS should be thinking about actually expanding the number of seats that we have that are alternative and, and, and accommodate some more kids who have these needs? I think we have roughly the right number of seats, mm -hmm. but the type of seats is mm -hmm. what I'm working with my team on shifting. And if you just look at uh, the broad categories of students who are overage and undercredited, so old and far from graduation, yeah. or old students who are close to graduation. And when you say old, they're, they're still under 22. Still right? under there, 22, there's a, yes. there's a rule that says that you have to... You can only be in high school. Yes, it's a, it's a state law, yeah. State law, okay. So the 22nd birthday. 22nd birthday. Yeah. And then what happens to you, you can go somewhere else and get your GED, but you so, can't yeah, so, be in high school. You're yeah, not you going to pay for you. You could uh, connect with, we have an adult school mm -hmm. in Boston Public Schools that issues diplomas. There are probably a dozen other independent uh, adult school, high center GED yeah. um, certificate programs across the city. Um, so really thinking about once they get to the maximum age, it's not just, okay, sorry, you're too old to be in school. It's, it's counseling to them to get to a program where they could actually finish. And you, you highlighted in the, um, the document that you guys produced, your set of recommendations, old and close and young and far were two yeah. key categories yeah. to pay attention to. So, why, so why is that? going back to the, the, the number of seats, right? Yeah. Right now, there, the most of the most of the seats in our programs are, are geared towards uh, the old and close population, mm -hmm. and those are students that are almost to graduation. Um, across the city right now, we have a slight enrollment dip in high school for probably the next two or three years, mm. and so what that means is those old and close students who used to be referred to alternative programs, our traditional schools are holding on to those students. Um, and so it creates a situation where our programs, yeah, before- Because, we, because, of, because of budget. Because of, but they want to hold on to students. Right. They're creating these new programs like the East Boston one I was mentioning. Yep. Um, and so as a network, as a alternative education, we have to adjust to those demands, like a supply and demand. We can't right. keep on offering 50% of our seats to old and close grad, uh, students when right. all those students are no longer coming right. to us, our biggest bucket right now is the old and far students. And mm. we only have about 16% of our programming geared towards that group. Uh, mm. We have about 15% or, or less, 14% of our seats geared towards the young and far population. So understanding where our sixth, current sixth and seventh and eighth graders are that are mm -hmm. gonna eventually be coming through and who may be our young and far from graduation uh, students, we gotta slowly start shifting our programming to meet not only the demand that we have right now, but also the demand that we are expecting. And we have a data analyst this year, uh, David Fisher, who is helping to bring this all this data to life. Uh, it's the first time uh, this network has been at the table looking at the same uh, type of data visualization tools at the same time. And for them to see, I remember one of our professional development is when we we're addressing, we we're addressing this, like, you know, we're serving these kids right now, but yeah. in two, three years, what is it going to look like? Right. And when we, we started the conversation that way, but then we showed them the current, just the age statistics for um, our current sixth, seventh, and eighth graders, and how many kids would fall into the bucket as starting ninth grade, like in the future years, as a 17-year-old, yeah. a 16-and-a-half-year-old, a 16-year-old, and a 15-and-a-half-year-old. And, and all of those categories are students, just by definition, they will be old and far from graduation at some point, even if they're... Yeah. 
earning the credits, like four credits, right. four core credits a, a year. What, what 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 is far? Like how how many credits short? We are determine you? we determine far? a year behind. Uh, year behind. Year behind. So, and then, and so when you say special programming, it somehow you could expedite the process of, of obtaining credits. Yeah. Is it's that? so there's, there's, there's that, but then also looking at, if you're looking at a young and, um, far population mm. and BDA, uh, targets our young population mm. this year, greater Eggleston, um, uh, is starting to open up programming for the younger okay. uh, crowd. So you're looking at the kids that are coming into ninth grade who are older that, you know, may or may not be, um, uh, you know, uh, academically prepared to tackle the work of a ninth grader. So how are we going to make sure that we have with this four year, uh, uh, run, runway that yeah. we have to, to get our students to graduation? Like, what are we doing strategically with our students who may need a little bit more time getting yeah. prepared to learn? Right. So once they start hitting their core classes, they'll be able to be successful. Do you see things that working? Um, I, I see amazing things at BDA. Yeah. Um, and we talked about them and, and, and then we have other schools that focus on uh, like late entrant ELs and, and BOT is another one that's been in the news right. lately for the overage. They actually take students that are 19, 20 and 21 were shifting next year to 18, 19 and 20 because of the new age policy. Mm, but mm. they do amazing uh, things with the programming for students from, from various different language backgrounds coming together and um, attaining their, their graduation diploma. Right. Cause, right. Cause that's the other big category that you talked about was, English language learners. Late intranials, yeah. Yeah. What does that mean, English language learners one or two? One so, or two. We, so we have students that are roughly EL one or two. It's 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 a designation that we have for our students who um, are typical of our first or second year um, uh, student in the country. Uh, what a, a lot of our students who come to our program like Bata, they they into uh, our system with high school credits from their home country. Some of them are very close mm. to graduation already, but they lack the level of English. So right. designing a program oh, that, that, you know, someone's getting A's in algebra, right. but struggling to get through their ESL one class, right. like it's, it requires a different type of programmatic model than yeah. your typical high school. And yeah. um, I mean, it's, it's amazing to see how they, they're, with, with so small, our, our network being so small, like how we're able to create these little niches of, of success and uh, programs that are designed to meet a specific need. We must have very good English language programs at this point. Yeah, and, and, and the thing is, there's in alternative education, there are two that specialize. There's Ultra Camino in, mm -hmm. in um, the Boston Collaborative High School, mm -hmm. and then there's Bata, which is a large one. They serve about 170 students. Mm. I went to their graduation this year. It was amazing. I think 85, 80, 80 students graduated, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's students that you see that they worked so hard to get to that moment, yeah. and, and, it's, and it's just so inspiring. Um, also in our uh, adult school graduation, we went to that graduation as well. And yeah. a lot of students is, are in the same situation as Bata, where they're le learning the language and acquiring uh, additional skills to get their diploma. But it's, I mean, to, to see the students, uh, uh, you know, be successful, get their diploma, yeah. walk the stage, it's, it's pretty amazing. That's so beautiful. Um, and all these students, they take it, like I said, it's not a straight line for these students. These right. students, it's, you know, it's, it's a... It, it, we have a thousand students and there's probably a thousand different journeys of how they got to graduation. Do you feel like most of them leave our alt ed system and they end up in college or they end up in a job that is better than kind of a, <clears throat> you know, a um, $15 an hour job or how do you think they fare 
once yeah. they leave the system. You know, that, that longer study of, of, of keeping track of our students, I mean, I haven't really dug into it that much. Mm. Um, I know that we do have students that graduate from our alternative high schools and they go to our local junior colleges, they go to our local four-year colleges. Yeah. Um, something that I'm really interested in uh, tackling this year is is what are we doing about the students with like pathway programs and job training and things like that and how is it linked into the curriculum of our programs? Yeah, um, what are we doing about that? Because you know you sit and listen to business leaders in Boston and around Boston and really across the country, right? And we're in this like amazing economic situation where there are more jobs than there are people to hire, and and a lot of these jobs require skills, but these skills could be trained. And, and so how do you think about that? And, and because, you know, for sure, four-year college is the right thing for lots of students to focus on. But for others, you know, to know that there are well-paying jobs at the end of, you know, two or three years of training. And if you could be doing some of that training when you were in high school, too. So and I know you're thinking a lot about this, but yeah. where do you think we're headed? Well, with in, in the alternative education uh, schools, yeah. um, being so small, it, it's hard to have a school develop their own CTE pathway or yeah. program. Um, the largest one, BDA, has you know aspirations of of formalizing some pathways, and you know they have the size and the the economies of scale to do that. Right. Um, but thinking about the alternative education network as a whole and what opportunities we could provide uh, our students. And, you know, not just because we're smaller programs, it doesn't mean we can't offer it to our students. And so I think it's really important to uh, look outside and see, you know, what type of programs we have at our local colleges or two-year colleges that could help us out. And we do have um, little programs here and there that are started by a, a, you know, small cohort of kids with one teacher working at one of the local community colleges, but it's not a system-wide thing. Right. Um, when you talk to the students, and I've had a couple of focus groups this year just in, in my onboarding and learning about alternate education in Boston, they talk about this stuff, but they're not using the words that we use and our business community leaders use. They, mm. they say, you know, I want to be trained for a job while I'm going to school. Right. Or I want to go to a college that will teach me right. X, Y, and Z. And totally. what they're saying is they want to come out with like a, you know, what we call a trade certificate or yeah. something like that. Right. Um, and so... Uh, my team is working on that issue right now. I had uh, one of the alternative education leaders on the CTE uh, working group team. Mm, yeah. um, and so uh, really like looking at what does it mean for a smaller school? Like how, how can we have equitable access to these programs? Right. Uh, you know, maybe it's a collaborative way that we do it. Maybe it's a innovative partnership that we have with one of the local colleges. Right. Um, but that, I mean, expect that to come out in the next like, year or two here because it's so definitely good. a hot topic right now. It's so good. It would be so smart to, to move um, in that direction. One, one of the things the working group pointed out is that alternative high schools have a branding program uh, problem. What did you mean by that? So um, this is probably February right? when I was working with the team and we're talking about being innovative and, you know, shifting our program a little bit here and there to meet the needs of our, our students that right. we have before us. Um, this is also the same time when, it, you know, in, in the early spring, um, we get a few more transfers coming into our alternative programs. And, you know, I, I, I got involved with a couple of conversations with school leaders and counselors and things like that. And, and, and it became very um, obvious to me that people didn't understand, like, what 
the alternative education was doing in Boston and how they complement or how they serve the students. Um, so at this professional development meeting, I had 22 of my leaders, it was, you know, the school leaders and their number twos. And I, I, I gave them a homework assignment to write me a tweet, a 160 character definition of alternative education in Boston. Like, what are, what are we? What do we do? Right. Who do we serve? And to my delight, these, the, you know, these 22 definitions that came out, they were all, you know, Huh. They were rowing the same direction. They 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 were a variation of how they described it, but basically they're they're they, they were on the same page of how they saw how they serve students. A secondary thing that I did was in, two days before I sent out a, a survey to twenty five uh, other people who have very close touch points with students who transition into alternative education. These were headmasters. Uh, counselors, people in central office, uh, working with special ed students. Right. Um, even I even got one or two uh, K eight or middle school um, folks that yeah. technically should know, you what know in all our system. Schools is, yeah. And and it was not a tweet. It was more or less like, can you describe a, yeah. a alternative education student in five adjectives? Can you describe a program and just to kind of see what how they thought yeah. we were. Right. Um, the one thing that struck me the most was like they didn't even know a lot of a lot of our school leaders and these are folks that I'm close with and and, and they, they we talk quite frankly about this and right. I, one of the questions was just give me the first five alternative schools and programs that come to mind right and no one got 100% of those it, wow, it was like some were, were calling uh, larger high schools that had a, a yeah, homegrown alternative program in it some were they would name the school by the leader like Rogers program instead of Ostagai. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and so it, like after that moment, I was like, okay, like yeah. if we're going to be like part of the system and we're going to be helping the schools either coming into the schools yeah. or helping the kids transition to a place that's more appropriate. Everybody has to know what, what we are. Is, who we, and, right. and, and, and even the transition process. Right. Cause I mean, Manny uh, with the reengagement center coming under, to, under um, our shop this year, great opportunity to say, Let's clean up the process. So everybody understands how a student actually transitions in from out of district or within the district. Right. Um, and so. And what's the promise? What's the promise? Yeah. What's the expected timeline? Like, and so what we did. The good news is, is that the people who are running it are, oh, yeah. are very cohesive yeah. and how that, they're thinking that, about it. So was, it's <laughs> crossing my you more of a communication problem. Yeah. But it, I mean, so there, there was um, a lot of uh, kind of like, let's step back and do a little soul searching and how we're going to get this happen. And, and we actually have a, a, a draft product out uh, in our uh, BPS blue book. It's, it's a description of all our schools. Yeah. Like all the alternative schools have like a, it looks like a $50 classified ad nice. like length. It's like super small. Yeah, it has easy to read. It has, uh, you know, basically contact information and what we're putting out hopefully by the end of the summer, our goal is to get it out. Um, by the August Leadership Institute is a nice, nice booklet where it features every school with a one pager with the, you know, very easy to read, uh, what the program does, who they serve, hours, uh, closest tea station, those type of things. So That's it's great. so, and I want that book to be on everybody's desk yeah. who works with the students. But yeah. then also we're including uh, student profiles so people can understand like, oh, the student Ben, this is his pathway to get right. to alternative education and guess what he graduated and now this is what he's doing right uh, also uh, educator profile so so teachers are being profiled in That's this great. to kind of share what they do and, and and they could see that oh uh, alternative education art teacher is not all that different I love than it a, I love um, it so. I mean it, you know I, I do think that that if more of what we were doing within the schools was thought about as a product to be sold right and that you really should be engaging and enticing students it, we'd have a different dynamic 
So I, I think that's just wonderful. So what do you, what kind on that, uh, you know, along those lines, is there programming that's missing in alternative high schools that if it existed, it might re-engage and excite students more or, you know, what are, and I think also you're doing some stuff to get kids thinking more about um, engaging in college or careers, but, you know, in pathways to careers, what sorts of things are we missing that you're excited to see? Well, it, start it, to come to fruition. I mean, I'm excited to see that there there are little pockets or you know small examples of pilots or just like we're going to try this with this group of students at this community college. Yeah. Um, I think that there's opportunity to bring these to scale. Yeah. The two big areas of concern for me that I think that we don't have a a, a, a solid plan right now, but it's a huge interest is. The dual enrollment opportunities. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so kids are getting high school credits while they're getting college credits. And, and this happens with year. like a great school leader and a great teacher who pushes this or something. You know, it's, and because it, outcomes are pretty significant, right? When yeah. you, when you're earning college credits, you actually end up going to yeah. college and you end up graduating. Yeah, more it, likely to. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, that's that seems like a no brainer. Yeah, and and how we bring that system wide to the alternative education because mm-hmm. it exists at other high schools and. Um, the other one would be uh, really addressing that CTE, that technical educate career technical education, yeah. um, to not make it a like this school is doing it because they reached out and they set a program with you know this external partner. But um, how do we bring it to the table for all the students who um, participate in the alternative education? Yeah, and then the uh, the other thing you talked about in the report is is measurement and how do you measure success in alternative schools, which I think is so smart to think about because I look at it from this, the opposite, right? And you're talking to like East Boston High School, Charlestown High School, there's all kinds of kids learning in those schools, but you know, the only metrics we use for success are MCAS scores. Mm-hmm. And, and so then in the, you've got kids who have yeah. just entered the schools who don't speak English yet and mm-hmm. their scores count, but mm-hmm. we test them in English yeah. and it's all kinds of craziness. And so, and so I love this notion that we're actually kind of thinking more deeply about what does success mean, at least yeah. in alternative high schools. Can you talk about that? And what do you think are the right ways to measure success? Yeah, I, I think the most concrete way to look at this is through attendance, right? Yeah. And I, I touched upon this a little bit earlier. Nearly all the students in alternative mm. vacation would be classified as chronically absent, missing more than uh, 10% of their school day. So 90, right. 90% attendance is our, our cutoff. Yeah. Um, I mean, we get school uh, students who uh, come to us with 40% attendance, and that's a, a good reason for their, their, their referral to us. Yeah. But if they if the fit is good and the motivation is good and all of a sudden the student realizes that they could be a learner in this alternative setting and you go from a 40% attendance rate to let's just say 80% attendance right. rate i mean that's a tremendous gain right but in our eyes in the state's eyes it's still chronically absent yeah i know it's unbelievable so you did everything you could to basically turn the student around from yeah. showing up 2 days a week to showing up 4 days a week yeah but you're still getting dinged for being chronically absent. So um, thinking about um, you know how we measure chronic chronic absenteeism mm-hmm. in our network, knowing that we're starting with a different you know baseline. Yeah. Um, right. But you know one of the things we're working on this group is like how to because we know schools that are doing it better, but actually creating a tool to say, hey, this school took the average of kids you know forty percent to sixty seven percent. That's a huge gain. Like let's learn what they're doing. Like how are they. Uh, resourcing some of their uh, staff members to actually work on this. Like, what? Are, how are they reaching out to the students? Um, and, and and I think that that that'll be a tool for me to 
help folks not only in the alter- alternative space, but in the traditional high totally. school space to say, look, it, just because a student showed up two days a week, it's no, it's not a reason to like completely ship them off and say, you know, someone else has to deal with them. Um, there may be some strategies that we can do at our traditional school um, right. that, that could that could help correct this. How, so how do and does that change how teachers think about what they're doing in a day? If 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 um, attendance within this you know kind of um, new notion of what what is productive attendance, it probably changes the way they think about mm-hmm. their job. Also, mm-hmm. one one that attendance is a metric, and two that that there's an understanding of what types of kids they're teaching. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of changed the way yeah, it, that they perform? It's you'll see like right now. I think there's three schools that are going all in on competency-based learning, mm-hmm, uh, which mm-hmm. is you know they do they, students do projects and there's like modules and right. and things like that. It's nothing like when you and I went to high school and it's like the you know everyone takes five classes and you got to do X amount of hours for each class. Right. Um, but also thinking about now we have these you know tools and resources like uh, online learning and there's you know two yes. platforms that our our network is using. Um, that's lined up to our curriculum, uh, the way that we track success and how students log on. It's 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 a it's a completely different way uh, from what the way we did high school even 20 years ago. Mm. Um, and what you see now are students and, and traditional high schools that use the traditional you know you know three or four period three or four periods for you know what you would say a traditional classroom. But then they yeah. would have like a flexible period where students come in and actually use these online resources. Uh, to either catch up or get ahead. Sometimes there are students, maybe they don't have enough students for a, a calculus two class or something, right. and, and, and they'll, they'll have a smaller cohort doing it that way. So That's thinking amazing. about what's out there and just, you know, thinking outside the box. And, you know, I, I remember when, when we first came in here, we were talking about how we can be more innovative with our schools. You look at uh, a picture of a schoolhouse in 1900 and 1950 yeah. and 2000, and today they're it's roughly the same picture, yeah. but our students are way different. Right. And, and the and, demands on them and, are way and, different. And I have a three year old and a four year old and what they're doing right now is it, it, I, I mean, they're on my phone and, yeah. you know, finding the games that they want and sending taking pictures, of, yeah, yeah. sending text messages. My daughter <laughs> send text messages. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it, the type of learners we have are, are different. Right. Um, and, and today than they were 20 years ago. And um, we have to think about how the we have to adjust to that. We have to think about our students as the end user, not the teachers of the programs. That's the right. That's that's exactly yeah. right. That the students are the customer. I totally agree with that. Do you um, does online learning work? You find that if I take a calculus class um, virtually, I, I can be as successful as as if I take one. It, I'm sitting across from. A if teacher. you're sitting there and just doing it independently by yourself, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that's a very high success rate. But we. In, in these online uh, you know, platforms, we have teachers that are credentialed that help support. Mm. Um, so there's, you'll see a combination of uh, like small group tutoring happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they'll use a different resource like Khan Academy or something yeah. in math. I was gonna say my kids yeah. swear by Khan Academy. Yeah, and, and a lot of a lot of people do, but yeah. um, it's not. It, it you, I would love it if everyone could come see how these things happen because yeah. it's not like kids on computers just yeah. like clicking modules to go to the next level. Yeah, yeah. Um, th- this, it's, there's an actual interactive part of it. So There is. Okay, so the teacher's, it, the teacher's live. And, and it does depend on the learner. I mentioned we yeah. keep on going back to fit. Like right. if there's students that's like, I want to go to online learning, but, you know, it, if, if it's, you know, whatever is, is part of the interview that determines that it might not be a good fit because it does take a level of independence to do this. Yeah. Um, 
maybe a mixed delivery program would be a little bit better. So do you think, do you think the day will come where we don't need in quotes, alternative schools because all schools are starting to shape themselves to the, the needs of students. And therefore we have different kinds of schools. But they, but ultimately, we serve the the purposes of all of all students. Or do you think there's always going to be a more traditional pathway? Four years, you know, some sort of basic core of of requirements, and 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 some kids are not going to make their way through this path in four years for any whatever number of reasons. And so we'll always have this separate thing called alternative ed schools. I mean, I think I remember when. Um, when I was a high school principal, yeah, I, I, I made this statement that we were, we were rolling out inclusion, and, and it was it was blowing people's minds that we were doing it, and, yeah. and and the issue was looking at students' IEPs, and everybody had to be well versed on it. And I, at one point, I said, "We have you know a thousand students, like everybody should have an IEP, like everybody learns differently." Right. And you know, to your question is like, will alternative education just go away and be folded in? I, I think there does need to be options for our students and. We have some very highly specialized programs yeah. um, that serve our students in a completely different way that we can't do in a traditional high school. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, I think that having an option in the traditional high school with people who know the kids best, mm. um, is it, there's so much value in that um, to be able to customize what we do for the students no matter what the setting is. Um, just one more thing back to those professional development meetings yeah. I was doing with the, the alternative network. Um, I was trying to get the definition of what the student alternative student is out of them. And we did this activity where they actually drew a picture of a student. There was like all these things yeah. where you like put three adjectives and put a, put an anecdote and tell me about their family. And it, there, there's 25 little pictures and these little templates we had in the amount of detail that, and these weren't teachers, these were the school leaders and they're, you know, they're right. number twos. And the amount of detail that they knew about these kids' lives and mm. like the challenges they face and the, the history that they, you know, from elementary to middle to high school and where they work. And right. it, it, it's, I'm not saying that, that traditional teachers don't have that because they do build relationships, but it was just, a, it was a very personal Yeah like experience where I, I stepped back and I was like, if we wrote all the words here and like doing one of those little worlds thing, yeah. you'll see things like love and like right. compassion. And like, it's, right. it's, it's amazing um, yeah. how the relationships are built. And I think that's the secret sauce in alternative education because it's a smaller setting. It's, yeah. you know, so there's a, a lower student to teacher ratio and you, you, you have a lot more supports to actually get to know the students and help them, uh, you understand their challenges, you understand their strengths, right? and you understand the opportunities they need to get to where they want to go. I, I totally would buy that love is an ingredient that's super important in education, as as much so as it is in food. <laughs> Not a physical ingredient. <laughs> I, I think it's physical. <laughs> um, do you, so, so last question. So, so you have, you're now taking on this new role, overseeing high schools that are both alternative and traditional. And so what's your, what's your hope for the next couple of years you know what what do you want to what's like the one big thing you want to see happen well I mean this whole branding thing I want everyone to understand like yeah. what we are and who we are but beyond that um like I would love for my alternative education school leaders teachers traditional high school headmasters and teachers yeah collaborating working together and seeing like what best practices yeah. they're doing 
Because I mean, well, this love thing could be really important. I feel like it could have legs. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's a great way to start. And you know, I want, I want to take our highest performing school and our, our largest, you know, yeah. traditional school and our smallest alt school and let them figure out what, what, how are they, what common now, what commonalities do they have in being right. successful for our students? And just because you're an exam school doesn't mean you have, you don't have challenging students. Right. And just right. because you're in a, a, a alternative school doesn't mean that you have. You don't have students that are brilliant, right. Um, right. and so just for them to understand, we're we're a very small system, yeah. and the overlap is it should be uh, a lot more. And going back to the East Boston story, yeah. I mean, the schools are school leaders are very good, teachers are very good. Um, you know, there's there's they're very successful as like you know how we look at MCAS yeah. and things like that, but. Um, the level of competition between the schools wasn't really there. Mm. It was a more of a, a level of collaboration. And right. you know, I would love to see, like, you know, I, I told the school leaders at one point, like, I, you don't have to ask permission for your kindergarten staff, your kindergarten team to go visit another school's kindergarten team. Right. And if I see your team at another school during their, like, you know, planning time for an hour, yeah, observing another, I'm going to be happy. It's not, you don't have to be worried. I'm not going to say, like, right. why didn't you tell me these people? Right. Um, and so I think that, that level of collaboration, if we could spread to our 35 high schools, um, they'll be, that'll be, that'll be a goal for me. It'd be amazing. That's, that's a beautiful goal. Well, we're very lucky to have you in the school system. I'm very glad that you're a part of VPS. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for listening to my conversation with Tommy Welch, one of the high school superintendents in VPS. Digging into this subject makes me realize that within our community of 55,000 students, there are an incredible diverse set of needs and circumstances. It makes me more convinced that in cities like Boston, improving education requires intense collaboration with a broad array of community systems and a spectrum rather than a single solution. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, like, and share it with friends and colleagues. Thanks so much for listening.